Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I cover the court here in Washington, and let me tell you, there's been a lot to cover lately. This week, we're going to be doing a preview episode of the Supreme Court term that kicks off next week, and we're going to talk about what President Trump's third nominee to the Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett, would mean for a lot of the cases that the court is going to hear this term, including about the Affordable Care Act and the House's ongoing impeachment inquiry of President Trump. But first, let me introduce uh, the co-host, Natalie Rodriguez. How are you today, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. Pretty good. Ready and just excited for the term to finally start. I know. I feel like usually this is when the news starts to kick off. But, you know, we've had quite a bit of Supreme Court news over the last few weeks. So I feel like we're finally transitioning back into our normal roles of actually analyzing these cases. It feels pretty good. Exactly. So uh, just kind of giving the lay of the land since it has been a hectic few weeks. Um, Obviously, we, we, we had the episode last week about the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. President Trump introduced uh, Amy Coney Barrett, as you mentioned, uh, as his third Supreme Court nominee on Saturday. She's a relatively recent uh, Trump appointee to the Seventh Circuit, um, but certainly has her, you know, conservative bona fides, former clerk to Justice Scalia, um, has been like a noted conservative legal scholar from Notre Dame Law School. Uh, her, her background certainly suggests that should she be appointed to the court, she'll uh, swing the court farthest to the right than it's seen in a while. That's right. I mean, this would be kind of the biggest lurch since Justice Clarence Thomas succeeded Justice Thurgood Marshall on the court in 1991. It would give conservatives, you know, a six to three majority in a lot of these cases. And just kind of what that means is that, you know, Chief Justice Roberts, we talked about this all last term about he is the new power broker on the court. He's the new swing justice. He's been voting. He's providing the liberal justices with their crucial fifth vote in a number of cases. What Amy Coney Barrett joining the court would mean is that Chief Justice Roberts really wouldn't play as much of that role anymore. I mean, the conservatives could afford to lose his vote and still prevail in a lot of those cases. So it's a big deal. And Republicans are amping up their efforts to get uh, Judge Barrett on the Supreme Court by Election Day, which is, you know, just a few weeks away on November 3rd. And pretty early on in the Supreme Court's 2020 term. So why don't we just jump right into it um, and talk about, you know, what to expect this term from, you know, a eight justice court in the first, you know, couple months and then potentially what we could see from a Judge Barrett after joining the court. So let me just uh, kick it to you, Natalie. What are you kind of most excited about covering this year? So I have to say that the court is uh in part because they they pushed back some of the big cases from last term, is starting kind of hot and heavy with a big copyright case. And I know copyright, you hear it and you're thinking, pretty dry stuff, right? But (laughs) it's Google v. Oracle, which is like this decade-long legal battle over like Google supposedly copying a bunch of Oracle software code for its Android system, you know, and it's a huge blockbuster and it's going to be the first week of oral arguments um and it's a blockbuster mainly because a the companies b there's like tens of billion dollars of dollars at stake supposedly or you know potentially um and it's also the first time the justices have ever ruled on software copyrights which mm-hmm. i'm like kind of taken aback by like you know, yeah, that, that's that software it's, as if it's like a relatively recent phenomenon that's come up in the past few years. But, you know, they're, exactly. they're slow to the uptake a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, it is also the first time the court's tackling um, copy the copyright laws like fair use doctrine in 25 years. So, you know, people in that corner of the world are 
like just waiting with bated breath to see how this this uh, case goes. Right. I know that the Supreme Court has kind of weighed into this issue of intellectual property law and technology before. I mean, obviously, the big uh, decision in 2014 in the Alice case, which involved like patents and what was patent eligible. But can you break down for me what exactly is the issue here? You know, in kind of plain terms to us non-copyright folks and us non-software you know, software people about, you know, what the issues are. So I'll, I'll, I'll try my best here. So basically, you know, Google has their Android phone system, which is, you know, just like everyone essentially without an iPhone from, right. from Apple. Um, and Oracle sued Google way back in 2010 saying they copied chunks of this code that they had you know, gotten some access to and, you know, said it was uh, an infringement of their copyright on the software. So there have been two trials. This has been like up and down the appellate ladder at least two times before like getting to the Supreme Court. And, you know, it's basically to what extent does copyright law cover software code? Like, is this something that is essentially copyrightable so, um, so it's, Google it's gonna be no, the first time <laughs> yeah it's gonna be the first time the high court really like weighs in on this question yeah i imagine it, it has huge implications for a lot of different companies and, and and when they're trying to build out their platforms and things like that especially as pretty much everything goes you know to the cloud and online and all these new systems are being rolled out so what are people saying about just kind of the stakes of this case so it's it's a big stakes in terms of like you know it'll set up hopefully set a good strong guideline for software companies right on exactly where the line is drawn for what can be copyrighted um but as we're mentioning you know it's no longer a nine justice court it's an eight justice court now copyright is not one of those issues that normally really divides along ideological lines but there is still a possibility you could get a four four split to which case, you know, this would go back to to the appellate court, which ruled in favor of Oracle, I believe. Yeah, it affirms the lower court. It was what we saw, like, you know, after Scalia died and there was that year plus vacancy when they affirmed the lower courts in a number of cases. Exactly. And, and you know, essentially, it's just kind of like a lost chance for the high court to get in on the conversation and set a nice bright line. That's so interesting because I'm just thinking now about how disappointed some of these copyright people will feel if that (laughs) is the case. I mean, this case was supposed to be heard last term, but it it was was. bumped after the pandemic. So they rescheduled it. And so now you're facing the possibility of just a complete, you know, nothing burger in this case, if you will. It's a lot of drama for, you know, what would otherwise be considered a relatively like somewhat dry copyright case but um yeah so that's that's the one that's i think uh you know at least high up on my radar and that's, for the beginning that's coming weeks. up yeah that's coming up pretty soon in the in the court's first i think the first week of it sitting maybe next week right yeah yeah how about you jimmy what's on what's on your radar so I am watching pretty closely the case that's going to be heard on November 4th, which is a day after the presidential election. No big deal. It's a case called uh, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, and it is a First Amendment case. It deals with the relatively straightforward question of, did the city of Philadelphia violate the First Amendment when it stopped working with a Catholic foster agency that refused to place children with same-sex couples? This certainly seems... Uh in good line with a thread of other religious rights and 
LGBTQ rights uh, cases we've seen from the court in recent years. So, so what's what's kind of the background of the case? How did we get here? Yeah. So it basically all started with a newspaper article. So in 2018, the Philadelphia Inquirer, it ran a story reporting that two of the foster agencies that the city had been doing work with, uh, it w- they did not place children with same-sex couples for because of their religious beliefs. So the story set off like a political controversy at, in City Hall, and the Department of Human Services began investigating whether these agencies were violating a city ordinance that prohibited discrimination in contracting. So we all know what happens next. The city cuts ties with the agencies, one of which is a group called the Catholic Social Services, and that group had done foster work in the city for like more than a century. And so that group, the Catholic Social Services, it basically sued the city saying that it had forced it to choose between its faith and its work at a time when they say the opioid epidemic has led to like a huge explosion of the need for more foster care parents and more foster agencies working with the city of Philadelphia. Obviously, this matters for the foster care system in Philadelphia. But I, I, I get the sense this could have some broader implications. Yeah, so this case could actually bring in a sea change in First Amendment law. And that's because in, in Fulton versus Philadelphia, the court is considering getting rid of a landmark First Amendment precedent in this case called Employment Division versus Smith. For years now, conservatives have been trying to get rid of this precedent, Smith, because they say it makes it really hard for religious groups to sue and challenge state laws or other laws that make it um, difficult to practice their religion. And so it wasn't clear before Justice Ginsburg's death that the conservatives had enough votes to overturn this Smith decision and make it easier for these religious groups to sue. But, you know, this is going to happen right after the election when the court is going to hear this case. And you could potentially see a Justice Barrett participating in the oral arguments. I mean, it only takes a few days, as we saw with the Kavanaugh a confirmation a, a few days for a new justice to get up to speed in some of these cases. So you could theoretically see her play an outsized role in this case in maybe joining the likes of Kavanaugh, Alito, Thomas Gorsuch um, to overturn this precedent, even if someone like Chief Justice Roberts wanted to prefer a narrower course. So that's a big one that I'm, I'm on the lookout for just the day after the election. So that's not the only, uh, I think, highly ideologically divided case that we'll be seeing uh, this term. Uh, Jimmy, you've also been checking out another one that's high on the radar. Yes, just a week after the election, uh, the Supreme Court is going to hear a case about a little law called the Affordable Care Act and decide whether or not it is indeed uh, constitutional. It's a case called California versus Texas. Um, A group of Republican states led by Texas, along with President Donald Trump, are asking the court to strike down the entirety of President Obama's landmark health care law as unconstitutional once again. Again. So uh, (laughs) remind us exactly where this legal challenge stemming from. Right. So remember like a million years ago in 2017 when Congress passed that huge, enormous tax cut? Yes. So tucked into that sweeping bill was a provision that reduced the individual mandate penalty. This is the mandate that tells people to buy health insurance. It reduced it to zero. Um, So essentially people that, you know, didn't sign up for health insurance no longer had to pay, you know, a tax, a penalty. And so Republicans went to court and they said, well, now that there's no longer a tax associated with the individual mandate, it's no longer a legitimate use of Congress's taxing power. And it gets kind of complicated because remember in one of the previous ACA cases, Roberts upheld the ACA as a legitimate use of Congress's taxes power. 
So it's kind of interlocked. I remember that. Right. Yes. It's kind of interlocked <laughs> in that now there's no longer a tax associated with it, so it's not a legitimate use of their taxing power. So a district court judge in Texas actually agreed with that argument, and he said not only is the individual mandate now unconstitutional because of what Congress did in the tax bill, now the whole ACA is unconstitutional because the mandate is, quote, essential to the rest of the law. So they said, you know, when one fall, when one chip falls, the whole thing falls. And the Fifth Circuit agreed, and they said that the mandate is now unconstitutional, although the appeals court said, you know, the district judge had to do his homework a little bit more in explaining the whole question of why the rest of the ACA should fall with it. So to get up to the Supreme Court, basically, rather than waiting for this whole process to play out in the lower courts and all the uncertainty around the legality of the ACA, the Supreme Court said, we're just going to hear this case and we're just going to resolve this whole issue about what the tax bill did to the individual mandate and in turn what it did to the Affordable Care Act. So this is really interesting because as you're talking, I'm just like thinking about the another similar case about the constitutionality of the CFPB last term. Right. Where, you know, Roberts came out really strongly against just like, you know, throwing the baby with, out with the bathwater, you know, and allowing kind of these more very careful surgical incisions into certain things when it's like such a huge policy that's affecting millions of people this is a few weeks after the election very possibly one week have a, one week a, after the election <laughs> one, oh, one week oh sorry yes. one week after the election okay so still not sure whether we'll be an eight justice court or a nine justice court how do you think barrett would play into this if she was confirmed by that time okay so what we know about barrett is that she is not the biggest fan of Roberts's decision in 2012 upholding the Affordable Care Act. She said in a law review article that he, you know, pushed the statute beyond its plausible meaning in order to uphold the statute. Uh, so whether that means that she's going to vote to, as you say, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, it's hard to say. I mean, I suppose it's possible that she'll she'll do that, but I think. More to the point, what you were talking about earlier with Roberts and this whole question, we're dancing around the topic of, you know, the word of severability. And that's the yes, idea that, that you should <laughs> that you should, you know, uh, basically, if you're going to strike down one provision of the Constitution or one provision of a statute, you strike that provision of the statute. You sever it from the rest of the law. And so that's what he's come out to, uh, in favor of doing in the past. Now, if Barrett's on the court it's not going to really come down to Chief Justice Roberts and his view of severability. It's going to come down to probably Justice Brett Kavanaugh and what he thinks about it. Because remember, you know, his the Chief Justice's vote is no longer really necessary for a five-justice majority on the Supreme Court. So assuming that Barrett gets on the court by, you know, this case, which, again, is just a few days after the election, it'll probably come down to Justice Kavanaugh's view of the question of severability. And a lot of experts that some of our reporters have talked to and some that I've talked to have you know read some of his past writings, including in cases last term, to suggest that he does in fact favor the, kind of the narrower course, um, where you might see a, a Gorsuch or an Alito or a Thomas you know be in favor of striking down the whole law. So we'll see you know at oral arguments what happens. There's a lot of uh, variables um, at the moment, but you know we should get a better idea in November. It certainly feels like a ever moving chessboard, almost uh, trying to, to game plan this out. Right, and I think that. I mean, Democrats are really anxious about the case, and they are basically making this a huge election issue. You know, a Justice Barrett, they say, would undoubtedly vote to strike down uh, the Affordable Care Act. And so they're trying to put it to voters in November. So Democrats are, I think, also uh, 
highly anticipating another case uh, watching it because uh, some of them are involved in as party as the House Judiciary Committee, um, which is suing, uh, which is part of a, a lawsuit uh, basically seeking unredacted materials from the Mueller investigation. The Mu- Are we still talking about the Mueller investigation? Wasn't that like, you know, way back in the day? We are still talking about it. <laughs> so um, on December 2nd, there's oral arguments set um, for whether the DOJ has to give the House Judiciary Committee the unredacted report. So if you remember way back when, the House did get the report, but it was like pretty heavily redacted. And now um, the committee is asking for, uh, you know, the, the full version, basically. Right. So how do they, what's the basis of the request here? Because I know that, you know, obviously these are grand jury materials, what they're seeking and grand jury materials are secret. So how, how, how is the House Judiciary Committee kind of justifying their request? So House attorneys are saying that they're considering basically another go at impeachment um, and at further articles of impeachment uh, regarding Trump's attempts to obstruct investigations, including whether or not he lied in some of his answers to the special counsel on the Mueller report. So the D.C. court did order, the the, the D.C. circuit did order the DOJ to hand over the materials. Um, and the DOJ is, a, you know, appealing this, basically, the Supreme Court, which is how we've gotten here. It's interesting because this case seems to have kind of a short shelf life, right? Because what they're seeking is all these documents in an impeachment inquiry of the president who may not even be the president, you know, in just a few months because of the upcoming election. So can you talk about that? Maybe the question of mootness that's looming over the whole thing? Yes, there's definitely been a couple of questions raised uh, on whether the argument should be mooted. You know, the Mueller probe's so old, the, you know, it's possible the election will, will will mean that he won't be in office a few months from now. And also, frankly, the arguments are set for December 2nd, and the House is supposed to adjourn just a few weeks later. So, so like, the what are they going to do? Expired, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, honestly, you know, we've seen a couple of interesting mooted cases in recent terms, too. Yes. This is also, I feel like, another big thread. So kind of watching out to see whether that happens here as well. Um, you know, I, I will say there's there's still a lot happening over records and the House committee just in the D.C. circuit and right. now again at the Supreme Court. This is a big interwoven mess web of litigation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Web of in litigation, I would say. And um, it'll be interesting to kind of see how everything kind of unfurls and plays out over the next few weeks and next few months. If nothing else, it'll be definitely interesting to see the Supreme Court rule on like a big separation of powers case like this, although they probably would find a technical way to get around it. But if they did, I mean, I think a lot of court watchers would be would eagerly, you know, eat that up. Yeah. So, I mean, those are just four of the cases that we're watching and, you know, I'm excited to see how all of this plays out and how all of these like little threads connecting some of the the, the election, uh, Congress and, 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 you know, huge policies that will affect potentially millions plays out in, in this term. Well, there is a lot to look out for, and we're going to be logging on every week and and jumping on the podcast here to to break it down for you guys. Thanks so much for uh, talking through it and breaking down everything, Natalie. Thanks so much, Jimmy. 
We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney, contributing reporters, Bill Donahue and Kevin Stowicki. Uh, music for the show comes from Slender Beats. And for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 and the term. Thanks for listening. And please subscribe and maybe even leave a review. <laughs>